Welcome to our service. I'm Steve Allen and I'm one of the key leaders or, or main leaders in church life. And in church we're doing a series called What Do We Believe? It's based on Paul's letter to the Romans. One of the things in our society at the moment, Western society, is a growing sense that science has disproved God. And yet Paul writes that creation points to the existence of God and therefore we are creatures and we come to life as creatures in relationship with a creator God. This is a, a crucial subject for us in our world to understand and grapple with the science and belief in God. So I thought that I would ask Steve Carruthers, a physics teacher, to give some thoughts about this. Hi everyone, I'm Steve, I'm married to Hazel and we have two fantastic girls, Zoe and Joanna, who many of you know. We're very sorry we haven't seen you all for such a long time and we hope we can see you in person soon. In my day job, I'm a physics teacher and I guess that's why Steve asked me to say a bit about how I understand and apply this passage of the Bible to my life. I'm also very much looking forward to giving you just a bit of a physics lesson today. So I'll start by saying that I certainly don't feel like an expert either in physics or in interpreting the Bible. In fact, the more physics I learn, the more I've realised I don't know. What we studied at university really was the tip of the iceberg and there is so much more than any one person could learn or understand in their lifetime. Also, I know that there are thousands of people in the world who are much more intelligent than me and who have been studying physics for far longer. In fact, some of you may be watching right now. So I really don't feel like an expert. However, studying physics has at least shown me how science works and what it can do. And so I feel I appreciate some of its strengths and limitations. And as for interpreting the Bible, well, that of course is a whole other enormous discipline and area to study. And of course, people study that their whole lives as well. Now, I don't have any formal training other than being a Christian for most of my life. So what I can share with you are only my own thoughts. They might be different from your views. They're not necessarily the view of everyone in the church or even the church's official view, if such a thing exists. But hopefully what I share with you will at least get you thinking. And if it does, then please let me know. I'd love to hear from you, whether you agree with me or disagree. Both physics and biblical interpretation really rely on discussion to drive them forward and help us understand them. So with all that out of the way, let me start by reading this Bible passage to you. Now I'll start at verse 18. It's Romans 1 verses 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now I want to focus on verses 19 to 20, but I included verse 18 so you knew who Paul was talking about. So I'm just going to read verses 19 to 20 again, and that's what we'll focus on. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now, the first thing I want to say is that I find Paul pretty difficult to understand. I don't think he's a clear communicator, certainly not always, and often his sentences can go on and on and seem to lose their thread. And as a teacher, I find this frustrating. However, I think it's important that we work hard to understand what he was saying so that we can apply it to our lives. He was, after all, one of the founding fathers of the early church uh, and is clearly very important as so much of his writing has been included in the Bible. He's also very definite in what he says and he speaks in very black and white terms. So he says things like, it's like this and not like that. Now, I find that this can rub me up the wrong way because he makes some statements that I find difficult to agree with and often difficult to understand, actually. And I think a lot of his points could benefit from discussion and gentleness rather than hard certainty. And actually, I think that's important for us to remember as we talk through what uh, I've got for you this morning. But anyway, what I think Paul was saying here is basically, look around. The universe is amazing. We can see God's beauty in it. In fact, it works so well that it must be designed. It can't have come randomly into being. Now, one of the old philosophical arguments for there being a God is William Paley's watchmaker argument. And so Paley said that if you were to walk through a field and you found a working pocket watch lying in the grass with all its intricacies and cleverness, it would lead you to think that it had been designed and that there must be a designer it was evidence of intelligence. Now, what do you think about this? Is the fact that the universe is so beautiful and intricate enough, just like a pocket watch, well, much more than a pocket watch, is that evidence enough for you to believe in God? Paul says it is. Do you think it's as black and white as Paul makes it sound? Because what I think when I read this passage is that if Paul is right, then why have so many seemingly intelligent people today come to a different conclusion? Why are some very clever scientists so strongly and evangelically almost atheist? Why isn't it clear to them that there's a God? And why does the scientific explanation of the beginning of the universe differ so strongly from what we read in Genesis 1 to 3, the biblical explanation? So at this point, I want to give you a brief physics lesson and look at what science currently says about the beginning of the universe. OK, now, have you heard of the Big Bang? Maybe, probably, we'll see. Anyway, the Big Bang is how science tells us the universe began with an explosion of energy from a tiny space. The moment at which time and space literally came into being. Before the Big Bang, none of the laws of physics or any of our maths seem to make any sense. We can't tell with science what happened, even at the point of the Big Bang. But we can predict backwards, think about mathematically and scientifically what happened a very, very, very short time after that Big Bang. And so science tells us that all space, matter and energy in the universe was originally compressed into that tiny point which exploded outwards. And it can even tell us when that happened, about 14 billion years ago. And so the universe has been expanding ever since that point. And there are two really important and good pieces of evidence for this that we can see. So firstly, 
If we look at distant galaxies through a telescope, now you need a really good telescope to do this, but um, not one like you or I might have at home, uh, but with really big uh, astronomical telescopes. If we look at distant galaxies, they are all moving away from us and away from each other. Just like ripples on a pond moving outwards, or points of light from a firework moving apart. Imagine running a video of a firework exploding backwards. If you could reverse it, then there would come a time when all the points of light were in one place. The same with ripples on a pond spreading outwards. If you see ripples and you can imagine running a video of those ripples backwards, then eventually those ripples would all come to a single point, the point where somebody threw a stone in the water. In the same way, if we could reverse that expansion of the universe, then logic says that at some point in the past, everything, all space, all matter, must have been in one place. Secondly, scientists can detect energy called microwave radiation spread evenly throughout the universe in any direction they look, up, down, forwards, backwards, wherever they look. Now this energy spread evenly throughout the universe suggests that at one point in the past, all the space in the universe, because it contains this energy evenly, was in the same place, at the same point, when that energy was first released. So the energy was released when everything was in one position, one place, and then as the universe has expanded, that energy has been spread evenly throughout it. So the whole of the universe was compressed into this tiny, tiny volume, smaller than a pinhead. Crazy, huh? And I agree, it does sound crazy and it blows my mind, but that is what evidence and looking around us seems to suggest. So this is the scientific point of view. And I expect that some of you are thinking, I disagree with that, or I choose to believe what the Bible says, or even only an atheist could believe in the Big Bang. Now, I want to stress now that I think you are completely at liberty to choose what you believe about this, okay? Your beliefs are up to you, even your understanding of the Bible and how you apply it to your life is up to you. And I think between you and God. So let's look briefly then at the biblical story uh, of the creation and what we read in Genesis 1. Now, I won't read it now as I haven't got much time, but I will say I think it's beautiful, very powerful and very important. In fact, I know from studying GCSE religious studies uh, that many of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity are rooted in Genesis 1 to 3. But it's a very different account of the start of the universe to the Big Bang. So how do we reconcile these differences? Should we even try? Well, I can tell you how I reconcile them with this analogy that I borrowed from a clever and very famous Christian physicist called Professor John Lennox. And so I want to ask you a simple question. Why is the water boiling? And so a physicist might be able to explain about how the gas in your cooker contains stored energy, which is burning in oxygen, releasing heat and light energy. This energy is making the metal atoms in the saucepan vibrate, which conduct heat energy through the saucepan and into the water. The water molecules heat up and they vibrate, breaking the bonds between them and turning the liquid water into a gas, which we call steam. And so therefore the water is boiling. You might think that's a very complicated answer to a simple question. But another and more personal answer is that the water is boiling because I'd like a cup of tea. And so here are two answers to the same question, one scientific, one personal. Both are valid, they don't conflict, 
and they don't compete. It's a scientific explanation and a personal explanation. And the scientific answer can go into incredible detail using maths and laws to explain and even predict what will happen to the water. However, the personal answer is often more interesting and illuminating. And I believe that the creation story in Genesis 1, with all its beauty, is like this, okay? I think it's like the personal answer. I don't personally believe that the world was literally created in six days in the order that Genesis says. But I also don't think that this account is in competition with what physics tells us, which can explain what maths, uh, sorry, explain with maths what happened a split second after the Big Bang. I think that both accounts are true, but with different kinds of truth. And as I occasionally tell my students, only when they ask me, that believing in the Big Bang doesn't mean you can't believe in God as well. I believe that God invented the laws of physics and made the Big Bang happen. And I think that any supposed conflict between science and Christianity is actually superficial. And that the conflict that actually exists is between worldviews, between belief in God versus atheism. When you look around and see the beauty and intricacy in the world, what do you choose to believe? Does it lead you to think that there must be a designer or not? Now, I personally think that many scientists who evangelically proclaim atheism are actually very proud, both of their own work and knowledge and of the combined knowledge and understanding of humankind. And I think that those atheists don't want to concede that there is a God with power greater than us or concede that there's a limit to our own understanding as people. Ultimately, though, and this is kind of my final point, really, please don't get hung up on this discussion about the beginning of the universe. As interesting as it is to discuss the beginning of the universe, well, at least I think it's interesting, I actually think it's a red herring, almost a distraction from far more important things which we should be thinking about. I think it's far, far more important to ask yourself questions like, how kind am I being? Am I honouring God with my money? How should I talk to this person? What would Jesus do in this situation, right here, right now? These are the questions that shape our lives and the decisions we make. And I think that these are the things that Jesus is most interested in. So to finish, Paul thought that the beauty and intricacy in the world was direct evidence of God's power and divine nature. Not everyone in the world agrees with him, of course. Many atheists choose to believe that the world came into being out of nothing rather than being brought into being by God. And even amongst Christians, there are a vast range of beliefs about exactly how the world began and what physically happened at the beginning of time and space. But whatever you believe, if you're ever talking about this topic to anyone else, whether they're Christian or not, please do it with love and compassion. Realise that not everyone may think the same way as you, but also that if we think differently from each other, it doesn't really matter. There are far more important things to focus on. I hope that's helpful. As I said, I'd love to hear what you think and to talk more about this to any of you who find it interesting. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye bye. Thanks, Steve. That was such a good introduction into the debate about science and God. Um, I'm going to spend about 12 minutes just building on that. Personally, I've read quite a lot. Even recently, I've read Stephen Hawking's book about life's big questions. 
And my thinking is that um, I find it so much easier to believe that someone has made something out of nothing than believing that nothing has made something out of nothing. If the universe started with a big bang, big bangs don't just happen. Something must have started it. Oh. That was Sue fooling around. There are many reasons for believing in God. But let's let's have a look at one of another area, the sense of beauty, a sense of worship as we look at creation. Pete Gregg writes, my friend Kathy was a million, million, militant atheist at the University of Wichita. When one night in her lodgings, gazing down at her sleeping baby, she was overwhelmed with a desire to give thanks to someone or something for this gift of all gifts. Without a husband or a boyfriend in her life, with whom to share her sense of wonder, Kathy whispered a few self-conscious words of gratitude out into the silence. And as she did so, the atmosphere seemed to change, wave upon wave of love, unlike anything she had ever experienced, came flooding into the room, kneeling there that night beside her sleeping baby. Kathy relinquished her ardent atheism. More than 30 years later, she remains a follower of Jesus. Or perhaps Bear Grylls, the adventurer. As I stood on the top of Mount Everest, mesmerised by the incredible curvature of the earth from the top of the world's greatest mountain, it was natural to feel, wow, God, you made all this. I guess that is worship. And so, what a privilege to climb mountains with the one who made them. Perhaps you've felt this sense of wonder and beauty when you've looked at a flower or creation or something. C.S. Lewis sums this up well, I think. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is something as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is a thing such as water. If I find myself a desire which no experience of the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Steve Carruthers raise the question of why some brilliant minds believe in God and others don't. Why is there such a difference? Paul in the passage talks about suppressing the truth. Stephen mentioned that one reason may be the sense that if there is a God then we are responsible for our actions. Another related answer was suggested by another famous uh, scientist Blaise Pascal, the brilliant mathematician and scientist of the 17th century, from which we get the Pascal's triangle and the unit of pressure, the Pascal. He argued from the existence of the world 
and the design of the world, a creator God, was the most likely, but not proven, result. Pascal also argued that the life with no God was meaningless, with no real purpose. There must be more. There's a longing in our hearts, a God-shaped hole. Our hearts are pointing to God, just like our minds or our reason did, but not proving. Pascal argued that this was the God of the Bible. He is there to be found by those that seek and search for him. He's not so obvious that he forces himself on people because God is a God of love. If he was in our face, we'd have to respond to him out of fear. Instead, what he wants is for us to find him and seek him and choose to love him. Let's read a bit more of Paul's letter. The background is that in chapter 1, Paul is passionate and believing the gospel, the good news of Jesus about salvation. But why do, why do people need to be saved? Let's read from uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the wickedness and godliness and wickedness of people who suppress, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what can may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be ever praised. Amen. Creation points to God's vast power. Billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars. Beauty points to his creativity and his wisdom, though to be sure some parts are ugly because of the fall. And then he does not force himself on us. He is a God of love, as Pascal pointed out. Creation, though, doesn't show us fully the nature of God. It's only as Jesus comes into creation, showing us fully who God really is like and who we should come to know and experience. Verse 25 said that these people who were rejecting God exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Paul's argument was that we need to be saved because there is creation that points to a living God and we need 
to come into relationship with him. Humanity is broken without a relationship vertically with God. That's what godlessness is. And our, it affects our horizontal relationships with our fellow humanity and we show wickedness to them. In my own story of becoming a Christian, I came to the point where I realised my whole life was just about me. Selfishly, just resolved round me. In our culture, we easily replace worshipping God for money, happiness or power. There's a measure of good in each. Even here in the passage, the word sinful desires literally means it's like an over-desire. It's a desire that has become misplaced or too big. It's an over-desire. These things of money, happiness and power are poor, are good servants, but poor masters. Even now as Christians, even I find that it's so easy to be worshipping other things than God. In other words, worshipping an idol. I remember Roger Forster saying about what our minds are idling to, fixing on, is, may well be, our idol. Yet we were created to worship God. You may have seen that rather humorous uh, video of an old man beginning an iPad and yet he uses it to chop the vegetables. <laughs> Absurd, isn't it? Or N.T. Wright talks about a beautiful violin that is created to give this sound that is used as a tennis racket. How absurd. And yet we are made in relationship with God. And yet we do other things. So what difference does this make to you and I this morning? Or whenever you're looking at this talk. The reality is we all fail to worship or love God as we should. But before you get too deeply into a sense of despondency and guilt, you need to remember that Jesus came into the world to restore that relationship and to begin to transform us that we might worship God again. He forgives us in Jesus. Two things that I found really helpful in life so that I have been able to be more aware of the reality of God's presence is one that I've written down the times when I personally have encountered God and they just excite me that God is God and it's wonderful. And when I think on those things I'm excited about him. And so periodically, I think once a week, I think through those things encourages me in my faith. The second thing I do is to have daily reminders of the fact that God is there and to pray to him and think about him. And you need to find those that work for you so that in everyday life we're constantly being connected to God. Wouldn't it be amazing that if we as individuals and as church were more connected with God See, I think that as we recognise God more and more, 
he comes and wants to live in our lives and our hearts in a greater and greater way. And as he does that, we truly, as a church, will become awake, as Stuart said in the vision talk. And the more we become awake, our community will become awake too. We, they will encounter God as they encounter the presence of God in you and I. Jesus promised that he, that he would give us life and life in abundance. So let's serve and be connected to our creator God who is forever to be praised.